if you've been with us, you know we've been going through Matthew. We started in January and worked through the first ten chapters and took a break in the summer to look at the Ten Commandments. Um, now we're back the last couple of weeks in Matthew. And just kind of a real brief overview or, or how all this fits together. Matthew 1 through 10, very roughly, is the offer of the king and the kingdom. And Jesus is introduced, you've shown his genealogy, uh, how he fits into that line, uh, the Davidic line, the kingly line of Israel. He is in line to be the king of Israel. Um, you see the, the Sermon on the Mount. You see him doing miracles. You see his life and his deeds. You hear him preaching and teaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is it near. And so you have in these first ten chapters an offer of the king and of the kingdom. And then in 11 and 12, we see what really is amounting to the rejection of that king and the rejection of that kingdom. And that's starting to come to a head. And then in 13, where Jared will come back and, and pick up next week, Jesus begins to teach in parables. And we, we think of parables as these nice, pithy little stories, kind of like Aesop's fables or whatever. Um, but really, in reality, they are a form of God's judgment upon a people who would not listen uh, and would not pay attention to what was clear to this point. And Jared will go back over this, cover this, uh, when he comes back. Um, but that's just kind of a real rough outline of kind of where we've been, a little bit of where we're headed. Um, and in this last part of chapter 12, I think we're really going to see some of this start to come to a head. So and he made allusion last week to a certain Aggie in the congregation. Um, and, and Mike Smith is also an Aggie, so I can't be sure that he was specifically talking to me or talking about me, but he kept looking at me. Um, so I, I am the Aggie. You can take that for what it's worth, um, which probably isn't much around here between Arkansas and Texas. Um, but native Texan, born and raised in Texas, in Texas, lived all my life. Living this close to Arkansas is a little rough for a guy like me. Um, but being from Texas, you learn very early on about the Battle of the Alamo. And I was always fascinated as a kid with the Alamo. Um, and the really, I guess, the climactic part of that story or at least as the legend is told, and it may not be factual, but Texans love to, to hold on to this point because um, it's grown in mythic proportions or whatever. But you know, the final night before the final siege the next morning, these men know that Santa Ana is about to bring his men, uh, and, and they're going to be overwhelmed. Uh, they're, they're, they're going to die. And so Colonel Travis takes his sword, you know the story, and he draws you know, this line in the sand. He's on one side. Uh, and he's he's telling the guys, you have a choice. You can step over the line and come with me. We're going to face certain death. We're going to find it out. We're not surrendering. Even if we would surrender, they've already told us they're not going to give us any quarter. They're going to kill us all. There will be no survivors. So you can step over this line with me and fight to a certain death. Or you, you do have the option of trying to escape and get out. And I think everyone but you know one Stepped over the line again. We don't. I, I don't remember what happened to the one guy if he got out and got killed, whatever. Um, but I think, in a lot of ways, what we see in this passage that we're looking at today is our own line in the sand. I think what Matthew was trying to say is that really there are only two main responses that we have to Christ. I think what he is saying in this passage is that either you are with Jesus or you are against Him. I think we'll see how all this is fleshed out as we walk through this passage. Either you're with Him, meaning that you are in fellowship with Him, you're His disciple, you're in relationship with Him, part of His family, 
You're following and seeking to imitate Him and be like Him. You rightly see that you are a great sinner, but you also rightly see that He is a great Savior and that He is your only hope. And you're trusting that. Falling on Him to save you. Falling on Him to save you. Or you're against Him. And that could mean that you're in outright open rebellion. We've seen a lot of instances through history of people who hate God, hate Christ, they hate Christianity. They will do whatever they can to destroy it, to wipe it off the face of the earth. And I think probably what is more prevalent, especially in this area, in this culture that we live in, is apathy. It's not outright open rebellion, but we just don't care. We're indifferent to Christ. We're indifferent to this claim. And we'll go to church. We all go to church around here. There's, there's not many people that I've met around in this area that don't go to church. And I think a lot of times that's, we're going because that's just what you're supposed to do. It's put you in good social standing in some circles. Um, or it's this good spiritual thing to do. I'm going to go just because it's spiritual. And as long as I'm not bothered too much by all this sin and Jesus stuff, then I'm okay. I'm just going to do my own thing, live my own life. Don't bother me. I'll be going. And we're just kind of indifferent. I think that's probably the more prevalent deal. Either way, though, I think what, what we see and what Jesus is saying, there's only two options. Either you are with me and anything else, whatever form it takes, is against me. Okay? So it's a long passage. Uh, I'm not, we don't have time to say everything that could be said. In fact, I gave Jared a hard time. He took the short one last week and then leaves me this long thing to, to, uh, to walk through this week. But time permitting, we're going to hit the highlights. And uh, hopefully we won't be out of here and go like at 12.30 or whatever. So I'll do my best. But let's look at verse 22. And we'll start there. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So you've got, right off the bat, you've got one miracle, but you've got two very different responses to this miracle. You have the people's response, you've got the response of the Pharisees. It's a stark contrast, uh, the, the two conclusions these two groups are coming to. The people see this, and it says they are amazed. Okay, They're blown away. Now, I think probably they have seen Jesus do some other miracles, but it seems like there is something to this one that leaves them absolutely astonished. Okay, They're blown away at what they've just seen. And the force of that, the force of what they've seen, jolts them to ask, can this be the son of David? In other words, is this the Messiah? Could this guy be the one that's prophesied about, that we've been waiting for? Okay, So you've got that response. And then on the opposite side, you've got the Pharisees. They look at this same miracle being done before them. And in verse 24, they say, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Okay, so so he's far away from being the Messiah. He's just this man. And Beelzebul, in, in this context, is referring to Satan. So the what the Pharisees are doing they can't deny that, that a miracle has taken place. That's obvious. The guy has obviously been healed. The demon has obviously been cast out. But what they will do is they will disparage the source of that miracle. Okay? So their, their hearts are so hardened against him that instead of acknowledging that this is a work of God's Spirit, which the people seemingly are, are coming to that conclusion, 
they attribute it to Satan. They're saying this is not this is not the Messiah. This is not God's work. This is the work of Satan. Okay, so one miracle, two very different responses that we have. So what's Jesus' reaction? Verse 25. It says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So in other words, how is Satan's kingdom going to advance, or how will it even endure? How is it even going to stand if what you're essentially saying is that he is giving me the power to overthrow his own demons? If he's giving me the power basically to overthrow himself, to overthrow his own kingdom, how, how is his own kingdom ever going to advance or stand? In other words, your logic, Pharisees, your reasoning, it's, it's absurd. His first reaction is that is basically, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's nuts. Okay? Makes no sense. And then in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, or by Satan, whom, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the second thing is, he's looking at your sons, your followers, your disciples, Pharisees, who cast out demons. Uh, when, when they do it, it's good, you approve. When I do it, same miracle, same kind of deal, all of a sudden, no wait, it, we don't approve, it's bad. In fact, that's a work of Satan. So let's take your followers and let them be the judge. Let them decide if I'm doing this really by the Spirit of God or if I'm doing this by Satan. And he's starting to put them into a corner. He's starting to crowd them into a corner. In verse 28, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right? If your if your sons, your followers decide that you know this is in fact I'm doing this by Satan, then that starts to call into question your own judgment about your followers. If I'm doing it by Satan, what about them? Okay. But if if they come to the opposite conclusion, if I really am doing this by God's Spirit, then it calls into question your judgment about me. Either way, there's there's an issue. And if I'm really doing this by the Spirit of God, then what you're and the, and the kingdom of God has come, then what you're doing is you're opposing God Himself. You are setting yourself up against God, and you're ascribing this to Satan's power. So either you take the clear evidence that's being given right here, and you admit that this is the Messiah, or you expose your own willingly hardened hearts. Okay, the people come into this one conclusion. And the Pharisees, because of the hardness of their heart, because they hate him, come to this completely opposite conclusion. Verse 29, he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man, again, that he's referring to here is Satan. And he's saying, not only am I not doing this by Satan's power, I'm actually overpowering him. I'm the one defeating him. I'm the one plundering him, plundering his goods. I'm taking the people that are under his control, that are bound like him, like this guy that we see at the very beginning. And I'm binding Satan. And I'm setting these people free. I'm plundering his goods. So, so I'm so far away from even from what you're suggesting. I'm actually defeating Satan. And then he sums up in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there, there is no middle ground here. 
to not be with him is to be against him. There's no neutrality. You can't be on neither side. You can't look at this and go, okay, I just don't want you. I don't want to go either way. That is a choice. You can't be on neither side here. And then the consequences of all this, verse 31, he says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, those are some verses that have caused a lot of confusion, I think, over the years. Um, you've got, and he's talking about blasphemy that could be forgiven, but then there's blasphemy against the Spirit that can't be forgiven. You can even speak a word against the Son of Man, what he's saying. You can speak a word against Christ, that could be forgiven. But to speak against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven forever. And people look at this and go, what in the world is he talking about? And there's been all sorts of ideas thrown out about what this unpardonable sin is. This unforgivable sin. And people have worried themselves sick. Have I committed this? Have I done this? Because there's no hope. That's what this is saying. Um, so, I think that, um, I mean, it is one of the tougher things uh, to understand. Else there wouldn't be, I think, the kind of confusion that exists. So I'm trying to clarify a little bit uh, for us this morning. And you see Paul himself in 1 Timothy refer to himself as a blasphemer. Okay, so it's got to be something different from this. Obviously, Paul was forgiven. So what Jesus is talking about has got to be something more specific or deeper than what Paul's done. And I think if we if we look at, at all of what uh, Matthew has said so far in his gospel, everything that he's presented, who Christ has done, what he's who he is, all of his teaching and deeds and compassion and showing his power, all of these are meant to demonstrate uh, that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But what the Pharisees have done here, um, in spite of all this clarity, they're willingly and maliciously rejecting him and attributing his work to Satan. Listen to this. Let me read this paragraph from a guy named Wayne Gruden. He says, The context indicates that Jesus is speaking about a sin that is not simply unbelief or rejection of Christ, but one that includes, one, a clear knowledge of who Christ is and of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, Two, a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his opponents knew to be true. And three, slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. In such cases, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would have already been rejected. Okay, see what he's saying here? Um, persuasion of the truth is not going to work. Because these people have already known the truth and they've willfully rejected that. Demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and to bring life won't work because they've seen that. And they've rejected that as well. Then he goes on to say, In this case, it's not the sin itself that is so horrible that it could not be covered by Christ's redemptive work, but rather that the sinner's hardened heart puts him or her beyond the reach of God's ordinary means of bringing forgiveness through repentance and trusting Christ for salvation. So it's not just unbelief, just general unbelief that we're talking about here, but a hardened, kind of eyes-wide-open belief. They have seen the truth, they have seen miracles, they've seen this power, and they've willingly rejected that. It's not just a lack of repentance. It's a hardened, eyes-wide-open unwillingness to repent and turn to God. Okay, so, again, the black, the, uh, the, this, unforgivable sin that he's talking about here 
is taking what is a clear work of God's Spirit and attributing that to Satan. Okay? And it comes from such a hardened heart uh, that I think I'm pretty safe in saying, if you're worried, you know, if you've ever worried about, have I committed this unforgivable sin? Um, that worry in and of itself is a pretty good indication that this is not you. Okay? You are not who he's talking about right here. Um, because that kind of worry over whether or not I've sinned doesn't show up in these guys right here. They're not sorry. They're not worried about that they've sinned against God. They're hardened. And it's a willing pardon. Okay? They've seen the truth. They know the truth. And yet they willingly reject that. Okay? So if you're worried about that, you put your mind at ease. That's, you are not who you're talking about right here. Okay? Let's move on. Verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. And he just goes right at him. How can you speak good when you are evil? For the abundance, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the, his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I think what he's getting at, when he says either make the tree good or bad, he's not, I don't think, primarily telling the Pharisees here that you need to change. Um, I don't think he's telling them, you know, you need to get off the fence like they're undecided about who he is. They've already made up their mind who he is. I think what he's getting at right here is he's saying um, it has more to do with the idea of let's cut out this hypocrisy. Okay, You guys need to show yourselves for who you truly are. In other places, he has he will accuse them of washing the outside of the cup. In other words, they they look good on the outside, their their externals look good, they have this apparent righteousness, and they're so pious. Okay, but the inside of the cup, he says, is filthy. Right? And I think what he's challenging the Pharisees is we know that at bottom, and he's going to call them at bottom, you are evil. So let's cut out all this pretension about your righteousness. Let's cut out this hypocrisy of you looking good on the outside and yet on the inside being filthy. And he's, I think he's making the same point with this with this metaphor of using the the uh, the tree and the fruit. I think he's saying in the same way that we can tell whether a tree is good or not by the fruit it produces, your fruit, your words, show just what kind of a tree or heart you really are, you really have. Okay, your words show who you truly are on the inside. Even the careless words that he talks about uh, down below. Okay, so that ought to scare us to death. If we if we really think about that, you think about all the words that you just use, you just throw out. Everything that has ever come out of your mouth, everything that continues to come out of your mouth. If that's a true indication of the nature of your heart, that ought to scare you. Now think about the, some of the things that I said in the past week. I can't deny that that is truly the condition of my heart. I am the kind of person who would say those things. I can't, you know, something. We, a lot of times something will fly out of our mouths and we'll try to go, no, that's not, that's not me. Okay, that may be true in the sense that that's not who I normally am, but that is still a part of me. That came from my heart. That is still an indication of what my heart truly is. And my heart truly is a mixture a lot of times. All right? That's not right. God will condemn that in His Scriptures. 
And the only hope we have of getting out of that is the mercy that Christ has shown us. But that's still a true indication of our hearts. So what he's getting at here is that the Pharisees' words of saying that his ministry, or saying that this miracle can be attributed to Satan, show that they are at bottom bad trees. They're evil. Okay? In the, in the words of verse 30, their words are showing that they are against him. Verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now we just got through looking a few weeks ago at Romans 2 and 3. And if you remember back to Romans, what did Paul say we were justified by? How are we justified? Our faith. We're justified by faith. And yet here, it seems like Christ is saying, you're justified by your words. And by your words you will be condemned. I think what he's getting at here in context, he's not saying that our words are the basis of our being made right with God. They're not the basis of our justification. But what they do is show a heart that is either justified or condemned. Okay, They show whether our hearts are falling on Christ as our only hope. They either show that our hearts are exercising that faith by which we're justified, or they show that we're rejecting Him. We show whether we're condemned. Okay? So it's not that our words, per se, save us. It's not that they are the basis of our justification. But what they do is show the nature of our heart and whether or not that heart is justified or condemned. Okay? So again, all of this, I think, so far is Matthew showing us that there are really only two main options. You can't, there, it's not A, B, C, and D. There's only A and B. Either we are with Him, as shown by our words, or we're against him, as shown by our words. Then 38, verse 38, says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if everything that he's done to this point is not enough. These guys, they're so hardened. Okay? Teacher. You know, a while ago, he was just this man. Okay? The the people are, are starting maybe to come to the conclusion he's the Messiah, and they're going, No, no, no. It, this is just this man. Okay, now it's teacher. I don't think that they're being respectful by calling him teacher here. I think it's sarcastic. Teacher, show us a sign. I think they're ticked off because he's continually exposed them and exposed their hypocrisy and their sin and he's challenged them. And I think they're just going, look, you think you're a teacher? All right, you say all these things against us? You know, we want to see a sign from heaven that's going to show us absolutely the authority that you have to be this kind of a teacher and say these kinds of things. And the sign that they're talking about is we want to see this spectacular sign in the heavens, you know, okay, that makes it absolutely, you know, without doubt. But there's no way to doubt this kind of deal. But again, I think they're just pretending. I think they have no intention at all in submitting to him. I think they're simply looking for another excuse to reject him. In other words, if he can't or won't produce this spectacular sign, and that's just another reason that they think they have to reject it. So I don't think there's any intent here that if he shows them a sign, they're going to repent. I think they're so hardened, uh, they've reached this point that they're not going to turn. They're not going to submit. And he answers in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as... Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? 
if all the clear signs, I think he's saying, that I have done, which was enough to begin to convince these people who don't know the Scriptures as well as you guys, okay, who are not steeped in the law like you guys, if this stuff is enough for the people to begin to come to these conclusions that I might be the Messiah, it ought to be more than enough for you guys who know these things far better than these people do. And if that's not enough for you, there's no other sign left to be given except the sign of what he's calling the sign of Jonah. And he makes reference to his own death and burial and resurrection. That's the only sign left. And we know even at that, people would, would see his resurrection. They would hear of his resurrection. And they would try to make up stories of why that didn't actually occur. Okay? They won't even take that as a sign. But he's saying, if all this other stuff has been so clear that these people can get it and you can't, who ought to know better, then there's no other sign left to be given to you guys except my resurrection. Okay? Um, and then he continues to condemn them. Verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, if Gentiles, and not just Gentiles, but the Ninevites, these were hated enemies of Israel. If these people are willing to marvel and repent at the wisdom and the preaching of an Israelite, either Solomon or Jonah, then you guys, you Israelites, stand condemned. Okay, Because you have not listened to me. You have not li listened to the greatest Israelite. You have not listened to the true Israel as Matthew has presented him in this gospel. Your own Messiah who stands before you. Something far greater than what the men of Nineveh had for them. Or what the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, had. What has been done to this point should have been more than enough to convince you of who I am. If even Gentiles would repent and marvel at seeing much less, you stand condemned for your rejection of the greater of what you have seen. Alright? And then I think he's, he's starting to wrap this up in this last little section, verse 43, which is kind of a curious deal. You're reading along, you know, everything's kind of making somewhat some sense, and then you get to this little story. And he starts talking about, you know, this demon leaves, and he goes out, and back, and seven others, now you got eight demons. Like, what in the world? How in the world does this fit? I still think there are some ties to what we've seen earlier on. Verse 46, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I think that that last little phrase helps to tie that in uh, with him using this evil generation stands condemned earlier on. Um, I think what he's doing here um, is warning against the danger of a half-hearted repentance. Okay, I like how one author kind of sums this up. It says he's warning of the danger of half-hearted repentance. This evil generation might be cleansed by either John the Baptist's ministry or Jesus' ministry. We see the people going out uh, to hear John the Baptist, to be baptized. 
to seemingly publicly repent. You know, it seems like they're putting their spiritual houses in order. In other words, the demon has gone out, the house has been swept and put in order. But I think the key, one of the key words there is that it's empty. Okay? They cleaned out a lot of stuff. Externals look good. But the inside of the house, the heart, is empty. There's no life there. It has not been replaced by something else. Okay, so this evil generation might be cleansed by Jesus' ministry among them, but a repentance which does not lead to a new allegiance leaves a void which the devil will exploit. So I think it's a warning. I think it's a commentary on what was happening with Israel. It was a warning to them. I think it's a warning to us. Don't let this repentance only be half-hearted. Don't let this repentance only be external. If your heart remains empty, then that person, I think he's saying, will return to their sins with the result that they will be far worse off than before. The last state of that person will be worse than the first. The last state of that nation, I guess maybe would be another way you could look at that, uh, of them as a nation only half-heartedly repenting, not receiving their own Messiah, not receiving their Savior. So I think what this does is it brings us back to where we started at the very beginning, that he who is not positively with Jesus will inevitably end up against him. Okay? Like I said earlier on, there is no A, B, C, and D. There's no none of the above or all of the above. There's only A. That's the right answer. You know, and anything else we try to answer is B. It's against him. Okay? So we face our own line in the sand again, with really only two options. To say this man truly is the Messiah or to reject him and his rightful authority. To either give him our heart and thus produce good fruit or to remain evil and only able to produce wickedness, bad fruit. Okay? To be justified by our words or condemned by them. To fall at the feet of one who is infinitely greater than any earthly prophet, priest, or king, or to reject his clear testimony and stand condemned. To either have our hearts filled with the living God through faith in Christ, or to remain hopelessly empty. I think all of those things that we walk through are showing what Matthew is trying to share. These are only two options. Okay, now that's kind of a stark message. And that's got a lot of sense of finality to that. To be faced with this line in the sand. If you think back, I don't know how many of you saw The Matrix. If you think back to The Matrix, uh, there's a guy in there named Neo, and he's got to choose between the red pill and the blue pill. Alright? But the, there's a finality. Once he makes that choice, there's no going back. Okay? And our own line in the sand presents us with a choice that at some point we have to choose, and at some other point there's no going back. Once that choice is made and final, there's no going back. There's no going back to change that. There's no going back to make up for a wrong choice, a wrong decision. Okay? Um, so that that's kind of sobering. Kind of stark, but that's the choice that we face. That's the choice that the whole world faces. What will we do with the person of Christ? What will we do with Jesus and his claim? Do we have the response of the people? Or do we have the response of the Pharisees? Either A or B. That's not the end. We've got just a couple more verses. And I think just like it, as you saw at the end of chapter 11, where Jesus has a message of hope, he's saying, all who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. There's a hope of rest 
for our souls. There is a hope of rest for our consciences. And just at the end of last week, we were looking where Jesus is presented as this sympathetic and compassionate Savior. And it says that there is hope in his name. I think at the end of this passage, too, you see hope. Look at verse 46. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. I think one, if you'll note, he doesn't point to the crowd in general. He points to his disciples, to those people who are committed to following him as a disciple, to those who he says do the will of his Father in heaven. Okay, um, To those who are with him, I think what we see is the offer of hope of a relationship with God as our Father. I think there's a hope there of a relationship with Christ because he is saying these are my brothers and my sisters, my mother. There's a relational aspect to this relationship. And I think we see the hope uh, of, a, of family ties that are stronger, can be stronger even than our earthly family. And I don't think what he's trying to do here is minimize the ties that we have with our own earthly families, our own mom and dad. But I think if you compare this with what else has been said in Matthew, what Jesus has said, um, is that if our love for Christ doesn't make our, the love at times for our own family look like hate, in other words, our love for, for Christ ought to be so much greater okay, than our earthly families. But I still don't think he's minimizing that. We see, we've seen in the Ten Commandments that we looked at a few weeks ago how we are to honor our father and our mother. Okay, And I think we look through Scripture and we see how high that is. I don't think he's minimizing that, but I think what he's saying is that there is a hope of family with ties that can be even stronger than what we find in our earthly families. And sometimes even those ties with our earthly families will be strained because of our allegiance to Christ. But again, we're faced with a choice. Do we follow Him, the only one who offers us that hope? Or do we reject Him? Okay? One last quote. We'll end with this. It says, The kingdom of God has come. The domain of Satan has been plundered. One greater than Jonah and Solomon has appeared. And a spectacular and unrivaled sign has been given to all. Jesus' resurrection. Hence, God has, in His Son, spoken louder than ever before. It follows that now is the day of salvation, in a sense untrue of any past moment. And it's not surprising that failure to hear and to respond in the present means that the last things become worse than the first. For the greater the opportunity missed, the greater the loss suffered. You can make the wrong choice. There's no going back to make up for it. Now is the day of salvation. Either A or B. Let me pray. Father, it is a, I think, a sobering thing to think about this. Um, Jesus had harsh words for those who would take the clarity of his work and attribute that to Satan. He has harsh words for people who would reject him in this manner. If we choose to respond like the Pharisees, even if we choose to respond just with indifference, there's no hope for us. We stand condemned. I pray, Father, for any who are here this morning 
who still have not made that choice to receive Jesus as their Savior, to receive Him as their Messiah, to look at what He has done and say, yes, I'm trusting in Him. I know I'm a sinner. I know He's my only hope. And I'm falling at His feet. I pray, Father, You would bring them to that point. Help us to keep in mind, too, Father, the hope that You offer. To those of us who are burdened and heavy laden, whose consciences, whose guilt weighs us down, that we can come to Christ and be relieved of that burden and find rest for ourselves. I pray that we would be reminded that we have hope in His name. And remind us, Father, of the hope that we have in the relationship with You and with Christ and with Your family, those who would do Your will. Remind us of this hope. Lead us, Father, to faith in Your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.